Today is, as you all know, Resurrection Sunday. And the Resurrection Easter is one of those events in the year, a little bit like Christmas. That for the Christian, for uh, the Church of God's people, it's one of those events that, that helps recalibrate us, helps reorient us in a certain way. I don't know whether you've ever had a car or experienced uh, this uh, when you've been in a car with someone else driving, when the steering's out of, out of alignment. You know, when you, maybe if you let go of the steering, don't do this while you're driving, and the car just naturally veers off to the left or veers off to the right, and what you need to do is you go to a garage and you get that realigned or uh, they get the tracking on. That's what you should do. And it's a result of bumping the curb or uh, being an overly aggressive driver, whatever it is, the steering goes out of alignment and it needs to be reorientated. It needs to be recalibrated. And Easter is a little bit like that for the Christian. It's one of those events in the year that just brings us back, prevents us from carrying on, maybe veering off the track that we should be on and brings us back in line. The resurrection just had something about it, just, just like Christmas Day often does, that just brings, brings the gospel back into focus, reminds us of who we are, recalibrates God's people to the eternal. That's what we need to do. So often, I know certainly I find, I'm sure we all do, we just get used to being here, don't we? As God's people, we get used to existing and living here. And actually, we've been made for so much more. The resurrection, folks, we remember it as a historical event, but it is so much more than that for the Christian. Like if the resurrection didn't happen, the Bible says, we'll see later on, that we of all people are to be pitied. The Christian faith is utterly powerless without the resurrection. It is meaningless without the resurrection. The resurrection also means for the Christian that we can take radical risks because this isn't all that there is. Our 50, 60, 70, 80 years that we might have here, that isn't it. Like we've got eternity ahead of us so we can, we can make a few risks. We can live radically because if we lose everything here, it doesn't matter. We have eternity to gain. The resurrection means everything to the Christian. First of all, we need to see that it's true. We need to believe that it's true. Let me read a first couple of verses from Luke chapter 24. This is the resurrection account according to Luke. And I just want to read the first 10 or 11 verses. And as we see it, we will see why the resurrection really is a radical truth. A radical truth. Let me read. Luke 24, verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? I love that. He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you again for all of the truths that we've confessed already this afternoon. We thank you that we can sing with confidence that your son is alive. He's risen. We thank you that we can say with confidence that because he has risen, our sin debt has been cleared. And Jesus, we thank you that all that we have in light of the resurrection, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this family that we have been brought into. We thank you for your word. And Jesus, as we hear from it now, we ask that you would continue to speak. We believe that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So come by the power of your spirit, change us and transform us, we pray. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe it. It is a radical truth. This is the conclusion of many people. When they hear the resurrection, when they hear it described, their conclusion is, this is an idle tale, and they fall into disbelief. You see, no one really contests the cross, Jesus' death, as we remembered on Good Friday. But so many people come to this conclusion that, that the resurrection is just, it's too far-fetched. With all of the science that we have, with all of the knowledge that we have today in the 21st century, the idea that someone could rise from the dead, that's just, that's a little bit too much. They've come up with loads of theories to try and explain it away. Here's five of the most common theories that you hear. There's loads, by the way. I read a whole PhD thesis on this last week. There are loads of theories. These are the top five reasons why the resurrection couldn't happen. First of all, there's the swoon theory. So this is the idea that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. So he, he did. He was on the cross. They crucified him. They flogged him. But actually, what, what everyone saw as a dead man wasn't a dead man at all. He was faking it. Now, here's the problem with that. Roman uh, crucifixion was not designed to make you swoon. It was designed to kill you. And in fact, if the, if the Roman soldiers who were there to execute you didn't fulfill their duty, then execution would fall on them. So they made sure that, that you were dead. They had made really sure that you were dead because they didn't want to be executed. Not only that, think of even before Jesus gets to the cross, think of the flogging that he endured. For some people, that was enough. That killed them. Scientists would say today that the flogging that Jesus endured, that Roman prisoners endured, was the equivalent of being shot in the back at close range every time the whip struck your back. So even before he gets to the cross, he's, he's frail, he's broken, he's exhausted, he's lost sleep. And the cross in itself was just unsurvivable. It was the most effective form of execution. The swoon theory doesn't hold. The stolen body theory is probably uh, one of my favorites. Um, after Jesus died on the cross, uh, he was laid in the tomb, uh, wrapped in linen and bound with over 75 pounds of perfume and spices. The tomb was sealed with a stone. Three Roman soldiers who were heavily armed were placed outside the tomb. But this theory suggests that somehow the disciples stole the body and took it away and hid it somewhere. Now, here's the problem with that theory. The disciples, like literally a few days earlier, they were running off scared. But somehow they got the confidence and the boldness to go and sneak in the middle of the night and somehow put these three Roman guards to sleep and somehow move the stone and somehow move the body and somehow hide it. See, the other problem is no one's able to find this dead body. It just doesn't hold the twin body theory is another one of my favorites. This one could find its way onto like a Netflix documentary. It's that wild. So here's the theory that there were two Jesuses. 
that actually when Jesus was born, there was two of them. He was one of two. There was twins. And his brother was kept hidden for 33 years. And then he was brought out and executed after 33 years. Like, like we know already that just doesn't make sense. Like, if you're that brother, like, that's a bum deal, right? Not only have you been hidden away for 33 years, but the one time you get to come out, it's to die a cruel death on a cross. The other problem is, who's at the foot of the cross? Mary. And she is in no doubt that it is her son, Jesus, who is being crucified. What about the hallucination theory? So the theory here is that the disciples, when they said they saw the resurrected Jesus, they didn't actually see him. Like they were overwhelmed. They were a bit emotional. Like they were hallucinating that they saw Jesus. Now, the problem is with this, if you've ever hallucinated, I hope you haven't. If you've ever, in fact, I did last year, but it was a result of the COVID jab. I had a hallucination in the middle of the night that there was a giant box in the room and the flaps on the box just kept on coming down and I couldn't, couldn't get them down. But here's the thing, Elizabeth was in the room at the same time and she didn't share my hallucination. See, that's the thing with hallucinations. You don't share them. When Jesus rose from the grave, what did the gospel say? He appeared to many people in many places at many times. It's not possible that every single one of those hundreds of people shared the same hallucination. Here's the last one on the list, the first century worldview theory. This is what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. So the idea that we here in the 21st century, with all of our knowledge of metaphysics and biology, we look back on the first century disciples and we know better than them. Like they believed in the resurrection because they were a little bit simpler in mind and maybe were a bit more easily swayed. They didn't have the science to back up the resurrection is impossible. There's the problem with that one. Most of the Jews didn't believe in physical resurrection anyway. The Greeks didn't believe in physical resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection, was as radical for them in the first century as it is for us now. So there was no point in them making it up as a story. Jesus' resurrection is radical, but it is true. Here's why we can believe it is true. Four reasons quickly here. Number one is the tomb was empty. Praise God. So the Christian movement could have been quickly crushed had the Roman uh, leaders or the religious leaders just produced the, the, the body. Just bring it out. Put this whole thing to death. Like it was causing problems in the empire. If you want this, this movement crushed, just bring out the dead body. But they couldn't because there wasn't one. Because he rose from the grave. Here's the second reason. Jesus appeared. He appeared to many people, as we said, many people at many times in many places. The Gospels record it. What's interesting with the way that the Gospels record Jesus' appearances is they're not particularly spectacular. Like if you and I were writing the resurrection story, or if we had Spielberg or Peter Jackson or someone like that writing the resurrection story, like they wouldn't write it like the Gospels write it. There would be fanfare, like Jesus would burst into the scene, riding on a horse with a big sword, and there was none of that. You find him eating fish on a beach, walking with his friends, just talking and chatting and eating dinner together. Like, it's so ordinary, it almost has to have happened. The third reason is the discovery account itself. So we read there in Luke 24, it was three ladies that discovered the empty tomb. Now, in the first century, some of you will know this, ladies, women had a very low social status. 
If you wanted someone to provide evidence, you wouldn't bring a woman to bring evidence. Now, the ladies who were there, they're interesting as well. Mary, Joanna, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene formerly had seven demons inside her. So if you really wanted to bring someone to to testify and give evidence to someone, don't bring the demon-possessed woman. But that is who found Jesus. He's found by ordinary people in ordinary places doing ordinary things. It is as if this really happened. And then lastly, look at the people who followed him. Jesus' mother and Jesus' brothers are convinced that he is God and he has risen from the dead. Like if there's anyone in our lives that knows whether we're telling the truth or not, it's our mums, isn't it, right? Yeah? Like our mums know whether we're lying or not, but Mary is convinced that his son is who he says he is, that he is the son of God and he has risen from the grave. And Jesus' brothers, like Jesus' brothers confess him as Lord. They believe that he has risen from the grave and they are willing to follow him for the rest of his life and even die for him. And think of the billions of other people who have. Like maybe one or two people will, will follow a myth. Like there's one or two crazy people out there who actually think the, the Loch Ness Monster is real. But I'm sure if you put a gun to their heads, they would say, all right, yeah. Well, hopefully they would. We assume that it's not real, but hopefully they'd say, yeah, okay. It's not true. None of these people did. Billions of people have followed him and given their lives to him. As radical as it might sound when we read it, folks, the evidence for the resurrection being true is overwhelming. It is radical, but it is true. But Jesus doesn't want us just to believe that he rose from the grave. He wants us to be changed by it. Here's the second thing that we see. It is a radical truth, but resurrection also brings about a radical transformation. Look down at the next verse with me, verse 12 of chapter 24. The ladies discover the empty tomb. They go and tell the disciples. And in verse 12, Luke says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I love, I love that it's Peter who goes first. Like it could have been anyone, but I love that it's Peter. I think of Think of Peter's last interaction with Jesus. If you've been kind of tracking through the story of Jesus' crucifixion over the last few days, Peter's last interaction is seeing Jesus walk across the courtyard, having denied him three times, locking eyes with Jesus and seeing him go to his death. Maybe people think, maybe Peter was at a far looking at his crucifixion from a distance. But Jesus' last interaction with Peter is one of shame, it's one of guilt, it's one of betrayal. It's one of him turning his back on Jesus. But I love that as soon as he hears from the ladies, the tomb is empty. There's no doubt in Peter's mind, I'm going. I'm going to see him, I'm going to find him. And Peter goes, you can just imagine him running towards the tomb just to check, just to see if it really is empty. And he gets there and he sees the linen clothes there. Jesus isn't there. And Luke tells us he goes home marveling. Like I love to think that that inside Peter, he's like, yes, he's done it. What he said he would do, he really did. And, And do you know what I really love? Peter isn't worried about Jesus being angry with him. Peter isn't worried about Jesus telling him off and condemning him and judging him for turning his back on him. No, he just wants to find Jesus. 
the apostles go on and write about Peter's encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, when he finally finds him. And when he does, there is no condemnation from Jesus. There is just love, kindness, and grace. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is determined to do a work of transformation in Peter. See, folks, if there was no resurrection, Peter and you and I, if we're believers, we would still be sitting here under the weight of shame and guilt for our sin. But because Jesus is alive, we're not. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment. And not only that, Jesus is coming alongside us and he is embracing us. He is encouraging us. He is delighting in us and he is determined to transform us. I love that Peter goes first. I love what happens next. The next part of chapter 24, you see two of Jesus' disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And in verse 13, Luke really deliberately tells us that they are going to Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Here's what he's trying to tell us. These two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified. Jerusalem is where they'd been doing their ministry over the last few days and weeks. And these two disciples are walking away. They've given up. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is dead and the movement is over. And so they're walking away from Jesus. But then what happens next is beautiful. Luke tells us that Jesus catches up with them and he walks with them and he shares the gospel with them. And they don't realize who it is, but they're really enjoying his company. So they carry on walking and talking for a bit. And this guy is just carrying on, unpacking the scriptures to them. And they're loving it. They're really lapping it up. But the sun starts to set. It starts to get, get too late to walk. And so they, they settle down and they say, they say to this man, would you stay with us for the night? And he says, okay. And so they gather around the table and there's food on the table. And then suddenly Jesus takes bread and blesses it and breaks it. And Luke says, their eyes were opened. The penny drops. It's Jesus. And you can just imagine them sitting around the table, eating and drinking, just carrying on, sharing the scriptures and mulling things over, having such a great time. And as Jesus breaks bread and he says, this is my body given for you. And he passes it to the disciples. And imagine, like we get what Luke's saying when he says their eyes were open, right? But then Jesus is gone. And in verse 32, the penny rarely drops. They say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? They realize it was Jesus and they run back to Jerusalem and they tell all of the others, the Lord has risen indeed. So here you've got Peter who runs towards Jesus. And there's no guilt, there's no shame for him. And here you've got two disciples who are walking away from Jesus. And, Paul, and Jesus comes alongside them, meets them where they are, encourages them, and pours the gospel into their hearts. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how Jesus is determined to transform his followers when we're running towards him or when we're running away from him? 
He wants to pour the gospel into our hearts and come alongside us. And he continues to meet with his disciples for 40 days after that. He teaches them, encourages them. He eats with them, drinks with them, walks with them, talks with them. For 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, that's what he does. Just spends this quality time with his disciples. Like, I love even that. Like, this is, Jesus has just risen from the grave, right? This is the the pinnacle of history. Like if that was you and I, if we just risen from the grave, we'd be going to Caesar, we'd be going to Pilate, we'd be going to do some business. But Jesus just wants to be with his friends. Just wants to get alongside his disciples and encourage them and love on them and teach them the scriptures. At the end of the 40 days, he leaves them. He sends his spirit, we see on the day of Pentecost, to carry on this work of transformation in the hearts of his disciples. And so we know, folks, because Jesus has risen from the grave, we can be sure that our sins are forgiven. There is no guilt. There is no shame to hang over us. The judgment of God is gone. And we can be certain that Christ will be present in our weariness and in our brokenness, walking with us, pouring his gospel into our hearts, continually transforming us. We can be sure of those things because of the resurrection. That is a certainty because of the resurrection of Jesus. He is going to transform us day by day. But it's not just transformation now. There is transformation in the life to come. See, we're quite an intelligent race, or at least we like to think that we are. Not us as a room, I mean us in general, as a humanity. And as a, as a kind of race, we've found innovative ways to, to elongate our lives, to, to make our lives better, to, to live longer. And we've done a fairly good job of it. In the last 100 years, we've effectively doubled our lifespan by 50 years. But people keep on dying, no matter what we try. I was reading something about Peter Thiel, who's the billionaire founder of PayPal. Have you heard of him? more money than he knows what to do with. And he started taking blood transfusions from young men in a hope that it will help him live longer. Well, we'll check it in 50 years and see how, how that's going, but I think we know what the inevitable conclusion is going to be. We can try and put our hope in technology to prolong our existence, but folks, Jesus is clear. The reason we die isn't because we haven't advanced enough in our technology. The reason we die is because of sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has paid for our sin debt. And in return for our sin, he gives us eternal life. Eternal life spiritually and eternal life physically. And that is what humanity aches for. Physical and spiritual life that really endures. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, you could turn there if you, if you want to, talks at length about the resurrection talks about the resurrection that is to come for God's people. In light of Jesus' resurrection, the promise of our resurrection, and he he talks about what this really means for us. And as he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he describes Jesus' resurrection as a kind of, like a first fruits. Verse 20, he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Matthew read this for us before. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the firstfruits. It is the taster of what is to come. 
It is the appetizer. His resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. Paul is saying there is an eternity ahead for those who belong to Jesus. And our eternity is glorious. Right at the end of the Bible, Apostle John in the book of Revelation has a vision of of what our eternity will look like. And what he sees in the eternity to come when we have resurrected and we are with our resurrected Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. He sees a world that we would all want. And he sees that we all have bodies that we all want. He's not talking about, at least he doesn't talk about it, the body with no wrinkles or the, the body, you know, with, with whatever that, that kind of means to you. You know, I, I don't know, the perfect kind of ripped body. He doesn't talk about that. What he talks about is this. A body that isn't exhausted anymore. A body that doesn't feel the frailty of the brokenness of the world. A body that doesn't feel the pain of engaging in sin. A body that is at rest. A body that doesn't experience grief. A body that doesn't experience frustration. A body that just experiences pure joy, pure peace, and pure rest. In the presence of God and his people. That is what is waiting for God's people. Our future resurrection will be transformational and that day is certain. But Jesus doesn't want us to just sit and wait for that day. The certainty of what lies ahead means that we can live radically with our lives now. And as the third thing that we see here. The resurrection paves a way for radical living. You see this in the apostles, right? At the cross, you see almost all of Jesus' followers run away. They're scared. They're ashamed. They desert Jesus. Like in Mark's account, one of the guys is so scared, he runs away, someone holds onto his cloak. He's got no clothes on underneath and literally he runs off naked. Like that's how terrified they were. But after the resurrection, everything changes. Jesus transforms them. They're filled with his Holy Spirit. And his followers live, truly live radically for him. Like, just look at the Apostle Paul. Before he encounters the resurrected Jesus, he is, he is the equivalent of a first century terrorist. Stephen, the first martyr, poor fellow, is standing up to give his first sermon. And he riles up the crowd so much. He, he brings up so much hatred towards Jesus and towards his gospel that the religious leaders surround him and they're about to pelt him with stones, but their cloaks are getting in the way. And so they give their coats to a young man named Paul and he gladly holds on to them as they pelt Stephen to death. Paul's on his way to deliver some documents for other Christians to be handed over to death. And on his way, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And everything changes. Jesus transforms him. Jesus changes him. He's brought into the church, like initially quite reluctantly, as you might expect. Like we've got this guy who wants to join the church, wants to be a member. He did used to want to kill us, but hang on a minute. Like you can imagine how that conversation is going to go. But they welcome him in. And eventually he goes off and he starts planting churches all the way across Europe. And he, he experiences real difficulty, real opposition. He ends up in prison. He's beaten. He's betrayed. He's shipwrecked twice. He's bitten by snakes. He ends up being beheaded in Rome. Why? 
because he has met the resurrected Jesus and his life has changed forever. In the passage that he wrote there to the church in Corinth, we see really what he is building his life on, why he's willing to live so radically. In verse 3 of chapter 50 in 1 Corinthians, he says this, that he passes on to the church in Corinth. He passes on to them what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is saying, the teaching that I've passed on to you, that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again, this is of first importance. There is nothing there's more important than this. The resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. The resurrection is what brings about this radical transformation in Paul's life, which enables him to do this crazy stuff. And he's not the only one. All of the apostles, apart from one. So after Jesus, we know there's, there's 12 apostles. They vote in another one. All 12 of them, apart from one, die as martyrs, die cruel deaths for following Jesus, for living radically for Jesus. And we're all like, well, what, who's the other guy? Who's the one who didn't live radically? Well, if you want to know that, it was the Apostle John. And the reason that he didn't die as, as a martyr is they tried to boil him to death and he just wouldn't die. So if you want to take that easy road, by all means, go for the hot boiling oil and try that. All of them lived for Jesus. All of them followed Jesus. All of them lived radical lives. As you hear them write to the churches, they encourage these churches to see that this isn't about being a super apostle. This isn't a life that is just reserved for us 12. This is a life that we all live. You pick that up on their letters, right? Like they're trying to encourage the churches that they write to you to live as they're living. And constantly you see this, this little theme pick up in the letters. They try and recalibrate them to the eternal. They know that these churches are struggling to live in light of the resurrection. They know that they will forget the resurrection. They know that they will just slip into trying to live normal lives. And so they keep on just popping in little phrases and little encouragements to bring them back to live in light of the resurrection, to recalibrate their existence, the eternal, to help them remember this isn't all there is. This is just a blink of an eye. We have eternity ahead of us. Live for that. Don't live for this. And so you hear them say things like, this is not your home. Your life is in Christ. You belong to another kingdom. You are foreigners, exiles, sojourners. You're just passing through this place. They're constantly trying to recalibrate the churches to their eternal existence. Constantly trying to get them to live in light of the resurrection. Because like you and I, and like our cars, they drift. They drift. And they start to settle. And they start to think that this is all there is. And so the apostles pull them back. No, 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 no. This is what it is to live. Look back and see Jesus' resurrection and look forward and see your resurrection to come and live in light of this. Folks, we started to talk about this a little bit last week and I want to just carry it on a little bit this week. I want to encourage us and push us and nudge us a little bit. Because I think all of us, and we can speak as church family here, I think all of us in some shape or form have started to drift and become comfortable. Become really comfortable living here. Being fooled into thinking that we need to invest everything we have and all the energy we have 
in this 70, 80, 90 years that we have, forgetting the eternity that is ahead of us. I want to nudge us a little bit, folks. I think some of us have been drifting and have forgotten that we have been called into something greater. Now, Easter is that great opportunity to recalibrate us, to reorient us, to to refresh us with, with who we are, to remind us of our identity. There's a wonderful video that came out last week. I talked a little bit about the golf last week, and I'm going to do it again this week. Um, but in, in a good light, uh, I said it in a bad frame last week, I'm going to encourage golf uh, this week. I don't know whether you saw the video that came out. Even if you don't like golf, you might have seen the video. Um, the guy who won it, Scotty Scheffler or Schaeffler, however you say his name, world number one. Uh, he won the Masters. So the Masters, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but probably the biggest golf tournament in the calendar. He wins the Masters. He's world number one. And he's doing an interview with his green jacket on afterwards. And the interviewer asks him a question, something like, you know, how do you, as well, number one, like you've won four tournaments on, on, on the bounce. Like, how do you stay humble with, with all of this fame and, and money and accolades? How do you do it? And his answer was brilliant. He turns to the interviewer, cool, cool as a cucumber, and said, well, at the end of the day, my identity isn't found in a golf score. My identity is found in Christ. I said on the way to the game this morning, my wife, who they're both Christians, my wife turned to me and she said, Scotty, it doesn't matter what happens today. The kids love you. I love you. Jesus loves you. That's where your identity is. And he just used this interview. It was about, only about 60 seconds long just to glorify Christ. He knows that he's made for something greater. Golf is, is so inferior compared to the identity that he finds in Christ and the eternity that he has ahead of him. We need to live like that, folks. We need to stop banking all of our chips on this life and open our eyes and to see what is ahead of us and to live in light of that. Let me push you a little bit and ask this. If the resurrection wasn't true, would it make a difference to how you live at all? Towards the end of Paul's chapter on the resurrection to the church in Corinth, he tells us the answer, or at least what the answer should be. He says, you know what, guys? If the resurrection ends, not be, ends up not being true, Christians, hands down, are the greatest losers in this world. We are absolute losers because we have wasted our lives. Verse 32 says this, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he's not saying this. He's not saying, right, let's go out and go in a big booze up. What he's saying is even more sinister and subtle than that. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What he's saying is this, if there is no resurrection, just go and live a normal life. Just go and do what everyone else is doing. Just eat and drink. You're going to die anyway. Maybe if he was to say that to us, he'd say in the 21st century here in Liverpool, he'd say, if the dead aren't raised, well, eat well, have a good diet, drink well, have plenty of water, not too much wine, not too much beer. Focus all of your effort on living the good life. Because if the dead aren't raised, well, you need to make sure that this life counts. So have a good diet, guys. Exercise well so you can live 
well for the time you've got here. Pour every drop of energy that you've got into your work so that you can make sure you've got a good pension so you can retire well. Orient your calendar around that holiday in the year so you can make sure that you get away and get that finely curated Instagram picture. Just blend into middle-class society. Just do what everyone else does. Avoid confrontation. Don't, don't get any, any arguments about the gospel. Don't share it with anyone because that's just going to cause people to get upset. Like, just avoid all of that. Maximise your pleasure and comfort in this life because hell is a myth, heaven is a fabrication, and eternity is irrelevant. That's what Paul's saying. Folks, if that is your goal, if your life's ambition is to maximise your comfort and enjoyment in this life, then Christianity is not for you. Or what might it look like to recalibrate our lives to the eternal? To really live in light of the resurrection? Maybe this is the maybe this is the stimulus that we need this Easter just to pull away from drifting to raise our hearts and minds to eternal realities and to live in light of what Christ has done and what he has prepared for us. Well, here's three things that I'd leave us with. What it might look like to live in light of the resurrection, to recalibrate to the eternal world firstly, to be radically generous, to be radically generous with our time, with our resources, with our energy. Maybe you could go away and just... For a moment this week, ask yourself this question. Does my calendar, does my bank account, does the people that I have around my mealtime table, do my daily rhythms, my sleep, what I do in the morning, do they reflect the reality that my hope is in an eternity to come and not in this life? Radical commitment. Committing our lives to building up others getting alongside other people and not just the easy ones. You know, it's easy to encourage and to commit our lives to people who we like and people who are like us, isn't it? But that isn't what the kingdom of God calls us into. The kingdom of God is for those who are broken and those who are poor. And so are we ready, folks, to have people around our dinner tables who don't look like us, who aren't interested in the things that we are interested in, who disagree with us, who smell Are we willing to have people in our homes who scuff up our carpets and leave mud on our floors? Are we willing to miss out on the next episode of that Netflix show because your evening has been hijacked by someone who just won't leave? Are you willing to put down that hobby to create some space and time in your calendar to get alongside people, to encourage them, to commit your lives to them because other people won't? It's radical, folks. It's not what other people would do. And finally, a radical hope. I want to encourage us to urgently share the hope of eternal life in Jesus. So maybe we could ask ourselves, do the relationships around us reflect that we are intentionally sharing the hope of eternal life that is only found in Jesus with those who need to hear it? What would it look like for us to do that? was to intentionally invest in relationships 
with those people around us. Can I just say, for some of, some of you know that for the last few months, maybe for much longer, we've been praying and really planning to host a tots group here and to uh, run something at the farmer's market again. And we've been really hoping that that would take off. And we've had a firm no on both of those. No to the tots group and no to the farmer's market. And as I've been praying and thinking about it, I'm actually really okay with that. Like those things might come in time and let's pray that they do and it might look a bit different to what we think. But maybe this is a time and a season where God is calling us actually to, to invest in the people that are around us. To look at the people who we live next door to. To look at the people who we are working with. To look at the people who we buy our coffees off. To look at the people who are in our homes. To look at the people who we walk past day, day after day. To look at the people who we get to train with or we cycle with or we go to the gym with. To look at these people and to seriously, maybe for the first time, intentionally invest in a relationship with them. Because in some ways, the farmer's market's easy. We set up a store, we have a few conversations, we put the box away and we go. Isn't it? We're actually really pouring into someone's life. Inviting them into our homes. Having them round our tables. Being inconvenienced by them. That takes time. That takes intentionality. But it's what's needed, folks. In the end, when we finish this life, a life of living this kind of radical generosity commitment and sharing the radical hope of the gospel, it will mean that at the end of our days, we're tired. We've probably got less money than we might have had if we'd have lived the normal life. We will have foregone privileges. We will have lost considerably. Can I encourage you? A life lived in the light of the resurrection is never a life wasted. That is a life worth living. Jim Elliot, who is um, one of the most famous missionaries of the last century, famously said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You hear what he's saying? hold on to the things of this world as tightly as we want to but in the end they'll go for eternal things people's lives the gospel our resurrection to come no one can take those things away so let us hold on to those things and pour into those things for the glory of God let's pray help us it's so easy to see the resurrection as just a moment in history even just to believe we know that you've called us into more father help us to truly live in light of the resurrection Help us to be fueled by it every day. Help us to see the power in the resurrection that you truly raised your son, Jesus, from the grave. And in doing so, he conquered Satan, sin and death for all of his people. Convince us of that. Help us to live in light of that every day. Father, thank you that you are continually changing us. Through your son, by the power of your spirit, making us every day more into his likeness. 
I thank you that one day we will see a great change. You will raise us up and give us new bodies to to live with you for all eternity. And we long for that day. We look towards that day. That is where our hope is banked. But we want to live now as you've called us to live. So help us to live radically. Oh, Father, help us from ever blending in and living the normal life being no different from the people around us who, who don't confess Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. By the power of your Spirit, help us to live radically, with a radical generosity, committing to people around us in a radical way, and sharing the hope of the Gospel to those who need to hear it. We need you, Father. We can't do this on our own. Keep us focused on your son. Help us never to make this about anything but his glory. He has proven that it's all about him and his resurrection. It's all about his glory. So help us to help us to work towards that end. To make much of him. To hold on to him. To lean and depend on him for all things. And it's in his name that we pray.